BCP Proper's podcast, a show where we discuss the proper lectionary readings of the 1662 Book of Common Prayer. I'm your host, Stephen Wedgworth, the rector of Christ Church in South Bend, Indiana. Thanks for joining us again. Now, it's been a couple weeks since the last episode. That's because I've had a lot going on, both in my family life and at church. Some very good things, some very hard things. Uh, and so we took a little bit of a break, uh, and I thought I should do uh, a full break, not only breaking from my uh, day job, but also things like the podcast. But now I'm getting back into the swing of things. And so we've missed uh, the three weeks leading up to Lent, the, the pre-Lenten season. But now here we are at the beginning of Lent. This Wednesday is the first day of the new season, commonly called Ash Wednesday. And for this episode, I'd like to look at the 1662 BCP Ash Wednesday. What do we see there? What do we not see there? Uh, and what uh, are all of these various Bible uh, selections and prayers teaching us? So the first thing to notice, it's a Wednesday, it's not a Sunday. Uh, it is a red-letter day, uh, but there's no particular Ash Wednesday liturgy like you would expect now. What you see is there are proper psalms for morning and evening prayer on Ash Wednesday. There are not proper first and second lessons, though. So you would carry on your daily office, uh, but using the proper psalms. We do see a propers for the Lord's Supper. So there would be a specific uh, Ash Wednesday Eucharistic service. Those would be plugged into the standard Holy Communion liturgy, though. So it's a proper collect of the day, proper epistle, proper gospel, but then otherwise the communion service as is normal. And yes, a communion service on Ash Wednesday what you would think of as a fast today. So the BCP is not uh, thinking that you're going to skip communion here. Uh, quite the contrary. It has uh, a particular set of communion propers. Uh, now, you might forego it. You may just do the anti-communion portion. That would be up to you. But uh, there's nothing in the theology of the BCP which would seek to separate communion and Ash Wednesday. And then there's one more thing you find in the BCP. It is a recommendation to be used at Ash Wednesday, but also other days, uh, and that is the commination service. Commination is a word that means God's judgment. And this service is uh, what a classical Anglican would do on Ash Wednesday, uh, in addition to the communion service, uh, but could also be done in other parts of the year. And in that service, you do have the uh, proper reading that the climax of the service really is Psalm 51. So we'll be talking about all of that in this episode. I'll start with the communion propers, and then we'll briefly discuss the proper psalms, and then we'll look at the commination liturgy. So for the Holy Communion on Ash Wednesday, here's the collect of the day. I'll read it and then discuss. 
almighty and everlasting God, who hatest nothing that thou hast made, and dost forgive the sins of all those who are penitent, create and make in us new and contrite hearts, that we, worthily lamenting our sins and acknowledging our wretchedness, may obtain of thee, the God of all mercy, perfect remission and forgiveness through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, this collect is an original creation of Thomas Cranmer's, but it's not entirely original. He's carrying over a significant portion of the collect, which would have been present in the Sarum Rite Missal. That's the older uh, English breviary or liturgical manual uh, coming from Salisbury. Sarum and Salisbury are the same thing. Uh, and this is uh, widely used across the Middle Ages, not only in England, and it still actually is allowed to be used uh, by Roman Catholics in certain contexts. So Cranmer is starting with a serum uh, right. He's keeping the basic outline of the prayer, and then he's making changes. Uh, also of interest is that opening line about uh, God who hates nothing that he has made. That's actually coming from the Apocryphal Book of Wisdom. And you'll see that uh, as actually a, a selected uh, reading in and Catholic liturgies even today. So I say it's an original composition of Cranmer, but I don't want to overstate the originality. He's starting with uh, features that would have been traditional in the day, but he makes changes. So what you don't see in this collect is any explicit statement about fasting. Now, yes, he's going to be for fasting, even fasting during the Lent. He'll support that. But that's not here in this collect, and you don't see a connection between fasting and receiving the forgiveness of sins. So that would have been the big change here. Instead, he's got an emphasis on God making new hearts so that we can truly repent. And that's going to be the main theme throughout all of the Book of Common Prayer Ash Wednesday services, uh, the internal transformation which is required. And that leads us to the scriptural propers. The epistle reading is from the Old Testament, so one of those occasions where it's not actually an epistle. Uh, this reading comes from the prophet Joel, chapter 2. Turn ye even to me, saith the Lord, with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart, and not your garments. Turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. It goes on through uh, verse 17, but I'll stop there. And what you have here is, yes, an acknowledgement of fasting. Later on, he talks about having a solemn assembly. So there's not a polemic against externals, but there is that straightforward, direct statement that what's more important is rending your heart. 
And so if you were to rend your garment in a spontaneous demonstration of anguish and repentance, that wouldn't necessarily be sin. But Joel saying, you've got to do more than that. And if you're only doing that, then it is a waste. Why draw near in words, but not your heart? What God really wants to see is the broken and the contrite heart, the lowly spirit. And so turn to the Lord with your heart. True repentance. And then God will spare us. Gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders. Yes, bring everybody together. Let's have a worship service. But let us make sure that we are speaking from the heart, that we're calling out with sincerity. And if we do that, then Joel tells us that the Lord will hear our prayer. He will spare his people. He will defend us against our enemies. So we can see that Ash Wednesday, it's already getting that tone. We are repenting. We are fearful and afraid. Enemies of God's judgment are crying out to him for deliverance. And then the gospel reading comes from Matthew chapter 6, verse 16 through 21. When you fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance. For they disfigure their faces, that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou fastest, anoint thine head, and wash thy face, that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy Father, which is in secret. And thy father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Lay not up for yourself treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Again, this text teaching us the imperative, the, the priority of the internal condition. Your heart matters much more than what's on the outside. You ought to fast. Fasting is external. It's bodily. But if you fast, it, it should be secret. Jesus says, don't make a big show of it. Don't let others know what you're doing. It's similar to his instruction about charitable giving, right? Alms deeds. Don't make a big show there either. Keep them secret. So, your good works done out of religious conviction should never be uh, paraded before the world. We should never draw attention to them. We should never think that those works are what actually please God. And we should certainly not use those works to boast over others or to be self-righteous. That would be a total contradiction of what's going on here. And connected with this, pursuing heavenly treasures. So again, you do your good works uh, for the invisible, for the spiritual, trusting God that he will see and reward. Uh, and you're not chasing after earthly reward. Fame, power, applause, uh, 
no boasting, because we know that our forgiveness, our salvation, it's undeserved. It's only by the free gift of God. And we're crying out to him to have mercy. Now, this reading out of Matthew, combined with the reading from Joel, uh, it does highlight the tension, perhaps contradiction, with modern Ash Wednesday services. Because here Jesus very directly says, when you fast, so yes, fast, we will fast, perhaps we can start fasting this week. When you fast, don't disfigure your face. Don't make yourself appear to be fasting. Don't do a big production. But instead, wash up. Present yourself as good, clean, ready, in order, and go about your business. And so, why would we read this passage and then go on to do a big production of disfiguring our faces to show the world that we are fasting. Like I say, attention, apparent contradiction for Ash Wednesday. Now, this contradiction was felt to be true, a legitimate contradiction, by Cranmer and the other Anglican reformers, and so they did away with the imposition of ashes on Ash Wednesday. It was, uh, it was ended in 1548. That's actually a year before he's going to release the Book of Common Prayer. And it may surprise listeners to know but the ashes were not brought back um, after the Restoration. The 1662 BCP does not have ashes. It calls the day Ash Wednesday, true enough, but it uses that uh, qualification, commonly called. And that's a bit of a wink or a head nod to say, uh, this is the description, uh, that's what people call it, um, and so we will retain the traditional usage, but but we're not putting an emphasis or an insistence on the ashes. In fact, they're not there. Uh, interestingly enough, Cranmer actually deleted the whole reference to Ash Wednesday, so that was gone in the BCPs. 1662 brought back the expression commonly called, but still no ashes. And ashes were not done during uh, the Caroline Divines. They were not done after the Restoration. You don't even see them done in the 18th century or the early 19th century. They really are not a feature of Anglican liturgy. You do see some Anglo-Catholics and ritualists try them out in the mid to late 19th century, and then they receive vigorous vigorous opposition. Uh, there was a, a minister in England, I believe his name was uh, Purchase, and he started bringing back in some of these elements, including ashes, and he was actually disciplined over it. And the case went all the way up to the highest courts, and they sided against the, per, uh, the minister, uh, Purchase, uh, and the ashes were seen as illicit, illegitimate. 1928 prayer book does not have ashes. They're not in there. It won't be until the 70s, after Vatican II and the liturgical renewal movement, that you get ashes back in a Book of Common Prayer. Now, that's surprising because there 
everywhere today. Uh, probably only a handful of Anglicans don't do them. Uh, and that's a pretty dramatic flip. It shows you how quickly traditions can be crafted and reinvented. Um, and I think it does warrant some questions. I've written about this. My colleague Sam Bray has also written about this. Uh, and we'll just leave that hanging there for you to ask the question. Uh, is the imposition of ashes really compatible and consistent with the theology of these readings? Um, and was its reintroduction the product of a true theological and liturgical advancement uh, consistent with Reformation Anglican Protest uh, principles? Or is it really just a case of people like to do stuff? It's an interesting ritual. It is definitely emotionally charged and moving, not trying to deny that, but uh, people just would rather do something rather than not do something. Uh, also, the appeal of a larger ecumenical movement, uh, certainly bearing, uh, bearing on the minds and the desires of the people. So important questions to ask there. I don't imagine I will convince the majority of Anglicans to discontinue ashes today, but perhaps we can begin thinking critically, asking the deep questions, and uh, comparing the older practice and learning what was there and why things weren't there. I would be curious to know when uh, Matthew 6 began to be read on the first day of Lent. The timeline there would be uh, fascinating. I, I do know that the Sarum Rite Liturgy, which we mentioned Cranmer was starting with, that did have imposition of ashes on Ash Wednesday. That's about the uh, 11th century when that's happening. So, they were present at least by them. However, the older uh, Glacian sacramentary, uh, and this would have been a Christian liturgy manual, um, has the, the various orders of service as well as certain uh, collection of scripture readings and prayers. Uh, that goes back to the 5th century, um, uh, at least in part, and then is uh, in more of a full form by the 8th century. Uh, it doesn't have the imposition of ashes for Ash Wednesday. So no Ash Wednesday as we understand it in the 8th century. Uh, it is there by the 11th. So I'd be curious, I'd be curious to know when the reading of Matthew 6 came about. My guess is it was first, uh, because it seems odd to already have the practice of ashes and then, then choose a text which would seem to militate against it. Seems more likely you already had the text there because it was a season to talk about fasting, how to do it rightly. And then this uh, liturgical practice is added later and perhaps people don't harmonize them or uh, they don't work through it all. I could see that happening more easily than having the practice and then going out and choosing a text which would seem to challenge it. Seems like that would cause a bit of whiplash, but I don't know for sure. Uh, maybe a listener out there knows some of the history to that. I would be curious uh, to, to learn more. So, into my little spiel on Ashes and Ash Wednesday. What do we see, though, beyond the communion propers in the BCP? Well, we see something very interesting. 
a really fascinating uh, collection of psalms and the combination liturgy. So there are proper psalms selected for morning and evening prayer, three for morning prayer, three for evening prayer, and then there's another psalm selected during the combination liturgy. So that gives you seven proper psalms for Ash Wednesday. And these seven psalms are the ones that are traditionally referred to as the seven penitential psalms. Uh, the first three of those seven are read in morning prayer. The second three of those seven are read in evening prayer. And then in the middle, the, the center of the seven is Psalm 51, the biggest, most famous penitential psalm. That one is read in the combination service. Grouping these psalms as seven, that goes back to around the 6th century. We see it in uh, the Christian author Cassiodorus. He refers to seven penitential psalms. Earlier than that, we can find at least four of these seven being referred to as the penitential psalms. Uh, we see that as early as Augustine of Hippo. So like so many things in church history, uh, you had certain ones for penitential psalms, and then people said, you know, What's better than four? Seven. Seven's a good number. So three other penitential psalms were selected. And then once you have seven, well, of course, you're not going to add any more, right? <laughs> um, so it's one of the trends of history, kind of working your way up to a catchy or symbolic uh, collection and then finalizing it. There's nothing sacred about that. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I think it is very interesting to have certain psalms that are deemed to be especially appropriate for penance, repentance, uh, crying out to God. Uh, but there are probably other psalms that could also be used. Uh, nothing absolute about the selection, but they do have uh, the burden of history. They have that benefit, uh, and the 6th century is fairly old. So by the time of the Reformation, they had uh, the sheen of antiquity upon them. The first three are going to appear in morning prayer, and these are psalms uh, using the Hebraic numbering which the Protestants used, Psalm 6, Psalm 32, and Psalm 38. And you'll see Psalm 6 cries out for help, asking God to show mercy, and acknowledging a fear of death and enemies around you who seek your harm. So that sets the tone of what we're uh, concerned about with our repentance. Sin on the mind draws us to the wages of sin, which is death, and then the fear of what our enemies will say, the accusations even from Satan. So we cry out to God to deliver us from this. And then comes Psalm 32. Now this is much needed on the heels of Psalm 6 because Psalm 32 is about forgiveness. So yes, we're repenting, we're crying out and confessing our sins, but Psalm 32 also says, blessed are the man whose sins are not counted, against whom God does not impute sin. This is quoted by Paul in Romans, a teaching the doctrine of imputation, that because of God's mercy, and ultimately we know the work of Christ on the cross, uh, God doesn't count our sins. He doesn't hold them against us. So when we confess and repent, our sins are, are gone, at least in God's judgment. And then the third of the Psalms for the morning prayer is 38, which 
really emphasizes God's judgment, the effects of God's judgment, the appearance of cursing and affliction. So we cry out to God, hasten to help us. So there, there's sort of a, a sandwich here of emphasis on judgment and the anxiety within forgiveness in the middle of those psalms. And then evening prayer, we have Psalms 102, 130, and 143. And this is perhaps the, the reverse. Uh, the first and the third have lots of uh, statements about how God's going to help. He's going to deliver. There's a bit more of an expectation of deliverance, whereas the one in the middle is very down and dark and crying out from the depths. So Psalm 102, we're crying for help. Uh, we meditate on our limitations, our temporality, and then we consider God's timelessness. He is forever. He does not change. And God's timelessness is then connected to his faithfulness. Since he's always the same, he doesn't change. We are not destroyed. We're not consumed. He remembers his covenant and delivers us. What's interesting about Psalm 102 is it gets cited by Hebrews chapter 1, and Hebrews applies uh, the God who doesn't change, the one who rolls up the heavens and the earth like a vesture but remains always as he is, applies that to the Son. Jesus is this God. And so, though God is outside of time and space, he never changes, he is eternal, he is infinite, he is immutable, he enters into our world and takes on human nature and flesh. He uh, lives within a world of temporality that gets complicated on the systematics, uh, pardon me, not saying everything. Um, in his humanity, he is changing and passable and suffers and dies, so that he can save us, deliver us, hear our cry for help, and defend us. Uh, the next for evening prayer, Psalm 130. Many people will know this as, From the depths of woe I cry to thee, my voice of lamentation. Uh, the Coverdale translation says, Out of the depths I cry. Um, if thou, O Lord, should count our iniquities, who can stand before thee? And so just an acknowledgement that we're really low, we're really in the depths here. We need God's help. Uh, and if we were to stand on our own merits, we would fail. Uh, Luther put together a metrical version of that psalm, which is in a lot of our hymnals. I recommend it to you. Uh, and then the final psalm, 143, again, um, more confident. Do not enter into judgment. Enter not into judgment with thy servant, O Lord, for who would be justified in thy sight, right? If, if you were to do that, no one could stand. But we know that you won't require that of your servants who are in your love and in your grace. Rather, hear us, deliver us, defend us. And so these penitential psalms are really psychologically complex. Uh, it's really a profound exercise to work through those, and so for Ash Wednesday, that would be an Anglican devotional practice. Now, I left out the one in the middle, 
So I did the first three and the last three, but right in the middle is Psalm 51. And this is what you'll do at the end of the combination service. It's its big finale. And I trust you're all familiar with Psalm 51, David's great prayer of confession of sin and repentance after he had sinned with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, Lord. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Against thee only have I sinned, O Lord. Uh, I was conceived in iniquity and sinned, did my mother bring me forth. Uh, purge me with hyssop. Make me white as snow. Then I will teach offenders thy ways. A uh, really famous passage, a model of how to deal with sin, how to repent, uh, and the acknowledgement that God does create clean hearts. A broken heart, O Lord, thou will not despise. A broken and a contrite spirit. These are the, the true sacrifices of God. So Psalm 51 is an amazing piece of theology for the Old Testament, isn't it? Showing that the external sacrificial rites were always external. They were symbolic. They were signs. And the true sacrifice of God was from the heart. And so that ties in with those communion propers from Joel and from Matthew. God really wants our heart. He wants true repentance. And that's the goal of Ash Wednesday. That's the goal of the whole Lenten season, isn't it? We're fasting, but not in order to fast. We're fasting in order to repent so that our internal man might be transformed. Now let's talk a little bit more about this combination service. This is what you'll turn to if you're looking for uh, the Ash Wednesday service. You're in the BCP. What do I do for Ash Wednesday? This is probably what you'll come upon if you're in the older BCPs because there's not another one other than the communion service. And the combination, it's very interesting. I'll read the subtitle here to tell you what it's about. A combination or denouncing of God's anger and judgments against sinners with certain prayers to be used on the first day of Lent and at other times as the ordinary shall appoint. Now, it begins with this introduction that in the early church there was a particular sort of discipline at the beginning of Lent. Those people who stood convicted of notorious sin were put to open penance and punished in this world so their souls might be saved on the day of the Lord, that others might take, learn from this example. If you've ever studied penance practices in the early church, you will be struck by how much more severe, how strict, how extreme they are compared to anything we do today. You had years of exclusion from the table, from being uh, sort of separated from the rest of the congregation, levels of shunning. And I'm not saying all of that was good, um, but it certainly showed a different posture, a different seriousness about holiness and the life of the Christian community uh, than many of us today. I mean, really, I think a lot of folks today think, well, even if you can't be admitted to you know, leadership or, or other things, uh, special privileges, like 
certainly if you repent, then you, you get to come right back into the service. You get to come right back to the Lord's Supper. You know, the idea that you'd have years of suspension is way outside of what most of us would allow for. And I'm not sure that I even would want to do what they did in the early church. Uh, I'm not, again, saying it's the way to go, but it's a different discipline. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. Uh, and here the BCP notes that, that there was a different sort of discipline in the early church. And here it's particularly talking about a public penance. Now, it doesn't then say, so let's just go back and do it. It does suggest that restoring the ancient discipline would be good, so it is much to be wished, um, but it acknowledges we're not there yet. We're not ready for that. So instead of doing this sort of heavy discipline only on the people who are convicted of notorious sin, what does the BCP do? Well, it curses everybody. And so the next step in the combination service is for the entire congregation to hear read the curses of the Mosaic Covenant from Deuteronomy. And so they read line by line particular curses. Cursed is the man that maketh any carved or molten image to worship it. Cursed is he that curseth his father or mother. Cursed is he that removeth his neighbor's landmark. And it goes through a number of these. Finally, at the end, there's something of a, of a vice list that runs through many, many sins. Cursed are the unmerciful, the fornicators and adulterers, covetous persons, idolaters, slanderers, drunkards, and extortioners. And after each of these curses, the minister reads them, the congregation is to answer, Amen. May it be, yes, this we believe. Essentially, I agree. And then there's a built-in homily to follow. The minister immediately says this, Now seeing that all they are accursed who do err and go astray from the commandments of God, let us remembering the dreadful judgment hanging over our heads and always ready to fall upon us, return unto our Lord God with all contrition and meekness of heart. So essentially, we have just called down the curses on our own heads. And so we now must repent we must cry out to God and ask for his deliverance. And after this built-in homily, which is um, about three to four pages, I, I think it takes me about 12 minutes, maybe 15 minutes to preach it when I preach it each year. Uh, and it's, it's quite good, uh, but it's also pretty strong stuff. I think you'll feel more like Jonathan Edwards than a 20th century Episcopalian. After this pretty strong sermon about the reality of God's curse against sin and the need to repent, then the combination service takes us to Psalm 51. Here we confess our sins. We cry out. We identify with David. And if we remember the context, remember David had committed adultery. So he stood accursed under those uh, Mosaic curses. We confess 
in the words of the psalm, acknowledging our sins, asking God to change and transform us to give us new hearts. And then there are a series of prayers. We do the Curie uh, Eleison, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. The Lord's Prayer, which of course has a call for forgiveness, uh, a lesser litany about God's help. And then the minister prays a number of collects about forgiveness, including that opening collect of Lent. And then there's a prayer about asking God to turn us, to show his favor upon us, to spare us when we deserve punishment, to think about mercy rather than wrath through the merits and mediation of thy blessed Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so the combination service does law and gospel takes you through the depths of the judgment against your sin, and then it has you confess and repent together with the whole church, and then it reminds you and prays for God's mercy and forgiveness. And so we're not promising and taking on a vow upon which it's completed will be forgiven. We're not suggesting that our fasting will earn the forgiveness, but rather we are breaking, we are being broken, we are laying bare our souls and actually crying out to God together and then receiving his free mercy in Christ Jesus. If you were to do the old classical BCP Ash Wednesday, I think it would look like a morning prayer doing the daily office, but with those proper psalms, then the litany after that, and then probably the combination service all together. Some point later in the day, you would then do the communion service, and then you'd end with the evening prayer with those proper collects there. And you really would see a motion at that point, starting off in the depths and the darkness, talking about judgment, moving into that combination service, which goes from law to gospel. Then the communion service itself, which stresses the interiority, the spirituality of our repentance, and it takes you through the communion liturgy, which has the law and the gospel, the forgiveness and the Lord's Supper there at the high point, and then finishing up with evening prayer with those uh, final three psalms, which have much more of an emphasis on uh, God's uh, forgiving, his delivering. And so a bit of an arc throughout the day, very scripture-saturated. And the high point is not a new ritual act, but the corporate repenting and praying together of the psalms. That's a BCP Ash Wednesday. Now, yes, there is fasting in the season of Lent. We'll talk about that uh, another time. Uh, the BCP is for that. Um, and the BCP is talking about repentance, uh, meditation upon mortality and death. Those are not, not totally foreign here. But it wants to do all of that in such a way to get to the heart, to lay bare the truth of the soul, 
that's what we're trying to achieve. That's what we want God actually to achieve, to work on us by his spirit and his word, to convict us of sin, to bring us to repentance, and then give us the grace, the assurance of salvation through Jesus Christ and his work for us on the cross. So I hope this year uh, you will participate in Ash Wednesday services. I hope you'll make the most of what the BCP has to offer, reading these penitential psalms, uh, reading the prophet Joel, reading the words of our Lord and Matthew, and practicing true repentance, being honest about your sins and asking God to work upon your heart to make you new the law and the gospel working together to convert the sinner, to continue to change the Christian, that we might perpetually return unto our God. This is how to start the season of Lent. And really, this is the life of repentance that should accompany the Christian throughout the rest of his days. Well, thank you for listening. My name is Stephen Wedgworth. This is the BCP Proper's podcast. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, I hope you'll tune in again. Feel free to share with others. Uh, check out past episodes and go get a copy of the 1662 Book of Common Prayer. 